Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Each week, we choose an interesting new book on some area of sports, and we visit with the author. This week's guest on the podcast is psychiatrist and historian Greg Demore. We are discussing his book, Tom Wills, The First Wild Man of Australian Sport, published by Allen and Unwin in 2011. Tom Wills is known today as the principal inventor of Australian rules football. Tom had studied at rugby school in England in the 1850s, and after he returned home to Australia, he made the rough game he had played as a schoolboy the basis of a new sport that cricketers could play in the winter. Throughout his life, it was cricket rather than football, that was Will's primary sport. He was a celebrated player in mid-19th century Australia, and he was a controversial one, most notably for his role in organizing a cricket team made up entirely of Aborigines. This was shocking not only because it challenged the prejudices of white Australians, but also because Tom Will's father had been killed five years earlier, in a brutal attack on his settlement by local Aborigines. In discussing these episodes of Wills's life, Greg Demore's biography offers a vivid picture of colonial Australian history. And of course, a significant part of Australian history has been its sporting culture. But even if your knowledge of Australia is limited, you'll find the talented and troubled Tom Wills to be a representative figure in modern sport, a forerunner to the self-destructive star athletes that we read about in the news today in any country. I learned a lot from this book and from my conversation with Greg. We started the interview by discussing his unusual background as a psychiatrist who had written a biography of one of the key figures of Australian sports history. So I have to admit, Greg, that we don't have a lot of psychiatrists as guests on new books in sports. So, well, well, maybe you need one, Bruce. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I'll see if I can be of great assistance to you. So can you tell us how you came to research and write a, a sports book, the biography of Tom Wills? Sure. Well, in fact, the fact that I'm a psychiatrist and written a biography about a sportsman is uh, of never-ending interest to a whole range of people. And uh, allows me to, to travel around the country speaking about this book. But really, for me, the story began over, the, over a decade ago when I took sabbatical leave from my hospital and I lived in Manhattan on the Upper East Side and I was working at Cornell University Medical Center. And I'd just gotten married and my wife and, uh, and I were over there for the 12 months and something very unexpected happened while I was living in Manhattan. 
at the end of 12 months, I turned to my wife and said, Heather, I actually don't think I want to return to Australia. And she was gobsmacked and couldn't believe that anyone wouldn't uh, want to live in Australia. And I explained to her that while I'd been living in Manhattan, I'd come to appreciate that a lot of Australian culture and institutions were really copies, were really clones of North American culture. And it bothered me a great deal. And I spent the last part of that year trying to think about what was original and different about Australia and why my parents indeed migrated there. And just before I left the United States to return to Sydney, I remember I sat down in my office at Cornell and I wrote down three things that I'd tell a New Yorker were distinctly Australian. And the first was Aboriginal history and culture. The second was Australia's flora and fauna. And thirdly, I wrote down the game of Australian rules football. Even though I didn't know how it began, at least I knew it was Australian. And so I had these three ideas in mind, that when I returned to Sydney, that I would do something in one of these fields. I opened up the local newspaper and I read a short article about the history of sport in Australia. And it said that a man by the name of Tom Wills was Australia's first great sportsman. He was our first great cricketer, the man who invented Australian rules football, but who tragically, in the year 1880, when he was only 44 years of age, took his own life. And he did this in Melbourne. And he took his own, his own life in the most uh, ghastly of ways. He actually plunged a pair of scissors into his chest, which pierced his heart, and of course he died instantly. And I remember sitting in my lounge room in Sydney thinking, how does a man who accomplishes so much in life end it at a relatively young age? And what were the forces that drove him to that point? So it was really my, my career as a psychiatrist that piqued my curiosity that drew me into sport. And so the starting point for me was his end, his suicide. And what I did then was simply drove into our local state library, found his obituary from an old newspaper from 1880. I read that obituary, which is only about four or five paragraphs, and my life changed, Bruce. I decided that I really wanted to understand all the forces that shaped his life. And I, my first step, really, was to try and understand how and why he took his life. So when I got the obituary, I found out that he had been hospitalised the day before he suicided at a hospital called the Royal Melbourne Hospital, which happened to be my old medical school. I rang them and asked if they had medical records lying around from the year 1880 because a remarkable Australian had been admitted to their hospital in that year. They said, Dr. Damore, at the back of our hospital, we have a room full of unopened cardboard boxes, and in each box is a leather-bound volume with all the medical writings of our 19th century doctors. Next time you're in our city, we'll show you the room and feel free to look for the medical notes. So as it turned out, a few months later, Bruce, I had a medical conference in the city of Melbourne, flew down, I gave my paper at the conference. My colleagues didn't see me for the rest of the week because I hightailed it to this hospital, met the hospital archivist, and she showed me into a room filled with these boxes with 19th century notes. 
I looked for about six or seven hours mm. peering into the lives of 19th century Australia until I found the single page that documented the medical condition of Tom Wills the day before he suicided. And it explained all to me because at the end of his life, he'd become an alcoholic. He'd stopped drinking suddenly. And when an alcoholic does that, they develop a condition called delirium tremens or DTs in which the person starts hallucinating. And he would have been seeing rats or cockroaches scuttling about the room. And he also became paranoid. In that frightened, tormented state, he absconded from hospital. The next day, responding to hallucinations, he stabbed himself and he was dead. And I thought, what a dramatic way to end your life. And at that point, I went from being a full-time doctor to a part-time doctor and a part-time sports history researcher. And that's really how I found the story of Tom Wills. And so for the all the importance of Tom Wills to the history of Australian sports uh, and his role as a, as a cricketer and his role in, in helping to develop Australian rules football, uh, there hadn't been a lot written about him, at least a lot uh, based on uh, solid, solid evidence, correct? Well, that was the mystery. I kept on asking myself, here am I, someone who is very knowledgeable in the fields of Australian sports, Yet I'd never heard of this man, but I wasn't alone because most Australians hadn't heard of him. So I was wanting to know why that was the case. Did his suicide perhaps uh, reduce his profile? Maybe there were sensitivities around the way he died. Maybe it was just that there was a lack of information. Or maybe, as I suspected, that Australians generally don't have a great knowledge of their own history. And strangely, we have this rather unusual mindset where we often take more interest in another country's history, particularly that of the United States, and also uh, of English history, and tend to somewhat forget and occasionally denigrate our own history. So all those things were percolating through my mind. Firstly, I wanted to know about Tom Wills, and along the way I wanted to understand why it was that none of us, or very few of us, knew anything about him. And the story that he has left behind, while it's extraordinary in a sporting sense, really goes beyond the sporting field and, for me, takes us to the heart of Australian culture. Well, let's turn to the story of Tom Wills, Greg, and uh, probably the best place to begin is with, with Wills' uh, family background. So can you tell us something about his parents and, and Tom's early years as a child? Sure. Tom was descended from convicts. As you're probably aware, Australia was settled by convicts, um, outcasts from English society, and both his mother and father were descended from convicts. They arrived in Botany Bay in New South Wales. But soon after they arrived, they acquired massive wealth once they became released and became free individuals. And they developed their wealth largely through mercantile interests, and also through pastoral interests. So by the time Tom was born in 1835, he was actually born into quite a wealthy family. And his father in particular was a very ambitious individual. His father, Horatio Wills, the most important uh, figure in Tom's life, was this country's editor 
of our first newspaper, the Sydney Gazette. Tom's father was also a farmer, a politician, an explorer, and an and, and inventor. So his father, Horatio Wills, was really the key figure. His mum was a, a simpler woman, but a very robust and, and tough individual. And so mother and father married in Sydney. Tom was born just outside of Sydney, and when he was four years of age, mother and father and his young boy, Tom Wills, left the colony of Sydney and moved to another part of Australia uh, called Western Victoria. And then from the age of four to 14, and this is one of the remarkable facets of Tom's life, from four to 14, he lived amongst Aboriginal children. Because a family had moved into an area of Australia that was newly settled, and they were one of the first white families in this area. So Tom's playmates during his childhood were all black. And when the family recalled Tom growing up in Australia, they talked about how Tom learnt Aboriginal languages, learnt Aboriginal dances, learnt songs, and there's also the implied suggestion that he may have learnt Aboriginal sports. And it's long been thought that maybe Tom Wills observed and played a form of Aboriginal football, sometimes called Mangrook or Mingorn, which may have been the basis of his developing the game of Australian rules football later in life. Now, there are people who argue on both sides, but largely it's speculation as to whether he did observe or play Aboriginal football. But the important thing is, his life as a boy was shaped by his contact with native Australians. And what made it so poignant for me when I was doing research was that I uncovered his father's letters and diaries of this period. So we're talking the 1840s, and there was tremendous bloodshed between whites and blacks in Australia at this time. While Tom Wills is playing with Aboriginal children, his father was implicated in the murder of at least three, four, maybe five Aboriginal men and women. It was a violent and dark period of Australian life. Uh, so another defining event in Tom's life comes in, in 1850 when he's 14, and his father sends him away to England uh, to rugby school. Uh, so can you tell us how did this experience in England shape his character? In fact, the experience in England, the six years he spent there, was really the pivotal sporting experience of his life. And it really set the template for his life. And the way it did this was that for the six years he was in England, most of the time was spent at rugby school, the famous boarding school. And at rugby, he really learned the craft of cricket until he was the finest young cricketer at rugby. He captained the rugby school cricket team, which was the peak position for a sporting boy. But his cricketing prowess really extended well beyond the school, and he was recognised as one of the finest young cricketers in all of England. He also learned the nascent rules of rugby school football, and this was a very primitive form of modern rugby union where hundreds of boys would push and shove a ball towards the goal. It was a, quite a violent primordial game in many ways. And the third thing that rugby shaped was actually his 
interest in alcohol because at rugby the boys could and did drink beer at lunchtime and dinner. And this may seem strange to a modern listener, but if you understand that the water was often polluted at rugby school and boys contracted infectious diseases such as cholera and occasionally died, you can see that an alternative was often called for and drinking beer, to some extent, was sanctioned at schools such as rugby. And why that's critical in his life is that that almost certainly was the genesis of his later alcohol problems. Well, picking up on that and, and going back to Wills's family, uh, his, his parents were, were uh, somewhat r- rigorously religious and moral, correct? Extraordinarily so, particularly his father. And his father's diary almost reads like one of the, the Gospels, and he would exhort his children, particularly Tom, to follow biblical teachings to the letter. And his mother was also very religious. So Wills, Tom Wills returns to Australia in 1856, and then what did he do after his return? Well, when he returned, word was already out in Australia that a man of unusual sporting ability was about to return to Australia. And literally within the first few weeks, of him returning to the city of Melbourne, he was recognised as the finest young cricketer in Australia. He was the best batsman, the best bowler, and the best captain. And not only that, he was also the most dashing because he was wearing these remarkable coloured English uh, cricketing costumes. And so he cut this very dashing, somewhat sexually provocative figure when he walked out onto the field of play. And it was reported that women would swoon in the stands when he walked out. And men, of course, were incredibly envious because not only was he dashing and good-looking, he was clearly the best cricketer in the land. He began to captain the Victorian cricket team to repeated victories. And as in modern-day sports, politicians and governors couldn't wait to shake their grubby hands with his hands. And so somehow received some of his reflected glory. And he was really Australia's first celebrity sportsman. And he, he was different to a lot of modern sportsmen in that he, this was a young man who was good-looking, uh, had some intelligence, and had a classical education. And he loved to write letters. And I think that's unusual about him because many sportsmen are not prone necessarily to document their thoughts on paper. Yet he would write dozens of letters to newspapers at the time in the 1850s and 60s, which has allowed us to track his life. And not only did he write these letters and talk about how sport should be organised in Australia, he would quote the classics. He would quote Hamlet and Lear. And so he was a remarkable man. And he did this throughout the summer months when he was playing cricket. And when cricket ended... He then wrote a letter saying that these colonies should form a football club. And so he and three other men sat down and wrote ten rules, handwritten rules, in the year 1859 that are the oldest written rules of Australian rules football. Now, the game had been played for at least a year or so before that, largely orchestrated by Tom Wills. So in winter... He begins this indigenous game of football. 
which was really carved from his English experience. It's really influenced more so by early rugby school football than any other factor. But many influences come from all kinds of directions. Some maintain that there's also an Aboriginal influence. But nonetheless, in winter he creates this game and in summer he plays cricket. And he has no time for work and thoughts of becoming a lawyer are dispensed with. He really dominates sport in a way that no sportsman had up until then and no sportsman really did for, for much of the 19th century in Australia. So he was well known as a cricketer. Uh, yes. And he was known as one of the the founding figures uh, of the winter sport of football. But he was also a controversial figure, correct? Oh, very much so. He was he was prickly and had a somewhat narcissistic thread that ran through him. And I use the word narcissistic not in a demeaning uh, way that suggests that he was someone who deliberately got into fights for the purpose of dominating someone. Uh, to try and achieve some goal. He, he was someone who, on the sporting field, was so competitive and had this unquenchable sense of optimism and was so competitive that simply by dint of all those factors, he created enemies amongst many of the other sportsmen with whom he played. Because not only did he have those features, he was also so good that generally, whether it be football or cricket, whatever team he played with, won. And he seemed to lack that broader self-awareness and insight that can often act as a survival mechanism in that when things weren't going well for him, either on the field or off the field, he seemed to lack an understanding of how his behaviour and how his words would get him into hot water repeatedly. And so beyond the sporting field, he was consumed with a kind of ineptitude for how life should be lived. But on the sporting field, he was a god. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you use that term narcissism, and I know that uh, part of the clinical definition of narcissism, correct, is, is a uh, real unawareness of other people, correct? Very much so. And he he was very much like that. But interestingly... When I, particularly as a psychiatrist, reading his letters and private letters about him written by others, what struck me was there was also a kind of tenderness in the way he was appraised by many of his contemporaries. And I found that curious. So, and what I think was happening was that the people around him, while at times they could be enraged by some of the things he said and did, I think they could also see the ineptitude within Tom Wills and his inherent self-destructiveness and that he wasn't someone who was necessarily trying to gain advantage in an administrative or monetary sense. And I think that there was a, almost a sense of love and affection mixed in with despair and anger at times towards him because generally most people didn't maintain their anger towards him for very long. So in 1861, five years after his return from England, uh, Wills is well known as a cricketer. He is playing uh, the game of football that he helped devise. And in October of that year, his father dies. So can you tell us about the the circumstances of his father's death? 
certainly. This is really the moment in his life when it all begins to unravel. The year is 1861. His father plucks Tom out of Melbourne to take him up to, the, to central Queensland, which is really part of the outback of Australia. It's a wild, inhospitable place. His father, Tom, and about 30 other Victorians catch a steamboat up to the north of Australia. They disembark at a city called Brisbane. They collect 10,000 sheep, and they trek for eight months into the heart of the Australian outback. These 30-odd settlers, white settlers, get to the, the new property they plan to settle in October 1861. And then on the 17th of October, after lunch, while most of the campsite is sleeping, local Aborigines attack and slaughter 19 men, women and children. That attack was and remains the single biggest massacre of white people by Indigenous Australians in this country's history. Amongst the first killed was Tom's father, Horatio, who was cut down with a tomahawk. Remarkably, Tom Will survived only because a couple of days before the attack, his father sent him away from the campsite to collect some goods they'd left en route. And when Tom returned one week later, the 19 whites were already dead and buried and the blood was already dried on the grass and the 10,000 sheep were dispersed and local white groups, like white settlers, were forming vigilante posses to wreak revenge upon the Aborigines. And it's not certain how many Aborigines were killed in response but figures suggest up to 300 Aborigines were massacred. Importantly, there is no evidence at all that Tom Wills took part in any of these reprisal massacres. Now, what struck me was I'd started this looking at an unusual man who created a unique brand of football, who was a great cricketer, but really, by following his trail, I had somehow helped find this remarkable and tragic event in Australian history. But the, the thing that really got me, Bruce, was that I'd never actually heard of this massacre at all. And I consider myself quite a well-educated Australian. So I started asking friends and colleagues whether they'd ever heard of this biggest massacre of white people in our country's history. No one had heard of it. So determined, I headed up to central Queensland to track down what had actually occurred, why the Aborigines attacked, why the whites responded in the way they did, and how it affected the man in my study, Tom Wills. And while I was up in central Queensland, I came across some of the Wills family who still live right next to the massacre site. And remarkably, they had kept handwritten letters from the year 1861 through to the year 1920, literally dozens of handwritten letters that documented this, this history. I asked them when they showed me the letters where the letters had been kept, and they said under the homestead for the last 120 years hmm. or so. A remarkable find. Hmm. And it, it told me actually how it did affect Tom Wills, 
because Tom Wills, after his dad's death, started to develop flashbacks and nightmares. We now know that as post-traumatic stress disorder. Back in 1861, the first modern descriptions of post-traumatic stress disorder were actually being written in the American Civil War in the fields of Virginia. The way Tom Wills treated himself back in 1861 was to hit the bottle hard and he started to spend all his money at local hotels. From from what you were able to gain in terms of evidence, you, you find no sign that, that Tom Wills took part in these vigilante attacks on Aborigines, but he was involved in, or excuse me, he was involved with Aborigines uh, a few years later. So can you tell us about the work that he did with Aboriginal sure. communities? In the shadow of his father's death in 1861, Five years later, Tom Wills undertook a remarkably courageous act, and it's really a, a mor- uh, an act of moral courage more than physical courage. The year is now 1866. It's five years after this massacre. Tom Wills leaves Melbourne, where he's still playing football and cricket. He returns back through the land where he grew up with Aborigines, and he finds, collects, and trains 10 Aboriginal farm workers and creates an Aboriginal cricket team. And this white captain coaches this team, brings them back to the city of Melbourne, and he plays another white team. And the private letters in Australia at the time were expressed shock and dismay. They couldn't believe that Tom Wills could create an Aboriginal cricket team. And many people felt that somehow he'd shamed his father's memory. But to other people, Bruce, he was a hero because he was elevating Aborigines and showing what indeed Aboriginal people could do. So he polarised opinion in a way that really no one had done. And here we have a somewhat um, idiosyncratic sportsman doing that by creating this team and for me for him to be able to do that after his father's death and the 18 other white people who died really marks one of the great turning points in Australian history and certainly is one of our great points of healing between white and black in this nation so Tom does this uh, uh, really remarkable act considering his family history to uh uh, to create this team of, of Aborigine cricket players. Uh, but how did he meet his responsibilities to his to his family? Because after his father's death, he was now the the eldest male of his family. Uh, so he had his mother, he had brother, younger brothers and sisters. Uh, did how, did, how did he work with his family? Well, 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 in short, he didn't. And this was the, the foibles of his personality. He's, he lived and breathed for sport, whether it be cricket or football. And so when he returned from Queensland, he was supposed to remain in Queensland running the new property, but really he was, by dint of his personality, unable to manage the men and the property and the finances. And it was found out that he'd been pilfering the finances and using the money almost certainly to purchase alcohol. So he left the property shamed within his family's eyes. He returned to playing sport And he went from being an amateur sportsman to a professional. And as you're probably aware, or you may not be aware, but to be an amateur sportsman, certainly in Australia in the 
mid and late uh, 19th century was to have a position or rank of some stature. But if you were a professional sportsman, in other words, you earned money through playing cricket, you were actually of a lower status. So he went from being an amateur sportsman because he had been independently wealthy. With his father's death, there was no income. He needed to earn some money for himself, so he became a professional cricketer. And in the eyes of his uh, siblings, particularly his sisters, they felt that he had let the family down terribly. So he he pursued his cricket career and his football career to support himself, but really he let his family in the lurch. And really from that point on, from the death of his father onwards, there's really a process of slow alienation between Tom and his family until the point of his death when he takes his life, which is really the last act of insubordination and alienation. And really after his death, his mother, for example, never spoke of him. And back to this... uh, um Tom's decision to become a, a professional cricket player, he did resist yes. that, correct? He wanted to, to maintain his amateur status, correct? Well, this is the irony, because to, to be an amateur meant that he could hold rank over people, it had a higher prestige in Australian society. So, interestingly, when he became a professional, he wasn't actually given the title of professional cricketer. They came up with a title of tutor, which was uh, quite an English-sounding name, which meant that he was a teacher of cricket to other people. But in reality, he was a professional, first and foremost. But he was more than happy to be given the title of tutor because it maintained the camouflage of superiority of his amateur status. So he could almost appear to be an amateur on the one hand, but on the other hand, he could take payment playing in sporting matches, cricket matches. And he remained like that for several years until the last few years of his life when he was openly a professional cricketer and of that lower status. So, Greg, we talked earlier about uh, Tom's narcissism uh, and yeah. his unwillingness and real inability to do anything anything but play sports. And, and uh, you, have the, you have a line in the book, you write that, that Wills was discontented with the ordinariness of life. And uh, so I'll ask you as a a psychiatrist, what were the roots of that discontent? Did it come out of, based on the research you've done, did it come out of Tom Wills' personality or uh, could you attribute it to his life as a a sportsman who was famous and highly sought from, from a young age? I think the, the the basis of that, Bruce, is really the nature of his personality. He was a, a stimulus-seeking individual. If you look at his life, almost every single year was different. Mm. He sought out a new challenge. He did things. He broke away from the pack. He tried something different. And he seemed completely uninterested if people around him criticized him for doing so. And, of course, that's what attracts us to to Tom and to people like Tom Wills. They're not conventional. They try different things. When he, for example, coached the Aboriginal cricket team, his contemporaries thought he was crazy. And they responded by not only belittling Tom, but also the Aboriginal cricketers, who at that time 
were often talked about almost like zoological curiosities, but Tom treated them as equals and regarded them highly if they could play sport well. He wasn't content, for example, just to play football the way it had always been played. He and several other men created something quite distinct. He wasn't content to remain with one cricket or football team. He roamed around large parts of Australia seeking new teams and new experiences. And while he did this to, to spread his prowess and to, to seek favour with certain individuals, I think there was an inner drivenness that he just couldn't settle down to a conventional nine-to-five lifestyle, which is what a lot of amateur sportsmen did. They were accountants, they were bankers, they were lawyers, and in their spare time they played sport. Tom Wills eschewed that comfortable existence, and he wanted that stimulation. And I think that really, the genesis of that, really comes from his personality. There was also another factor that I should mention, Bruce, and that was the driving influence of his father. We've talked a little bit about his father's religious beliefs, but the other factor in his father's belief system was this really strident belief that Australia, as a young nation, should become very much like the United States. We should break away from England. We should find our own heroes, our own games, our own values, and be confident that what we create as a nation is as every bit as good as the English could create. And some of his father's writing is very vitriolic towards the English. And he almost describes it as though the Australians need to break away, have our own revolution, our own war of independence, to become who, who uh, the country that he thought we should be, which is like a young United States, rather than an appendage of England. And Tom Wills drank all this up throughout his childhood and his young adulthood. And I think that also drove Tom to try and do something different, something spectacular, and something definitive that was always underlined by the fact that he was born and brought up as an Australian. So as you've talked about already, Tom had a uh, had a problem with alcohol going back to his time at rugby school, and that will sure. uh, be the cause of his death. Um, but something interesting from your book is is the picture you give, the context you give of alcohol and sport in the mid nineteenth oh, century. So. so could you talk yes. about that? What uh-huh. role did drink have in the games of the time? Oh, uh, it's very significant. We often think that the the issue of young men sport, alcohol, and behavior problems is a 21st century or 20th, 20th century problem. It's not. In Australia, in the middle of the 19th century, when you played cricket, you drank before you went out onto the field of play. You drank during play and after a day's play. And I was fascinated to find this guide to what the young gentleman cricketer should drink. This is an English publication which was widely available in Australia in the mid-19th century. And what fascinated me was that the guide to what a young gentleman cricketer should drink contained all alcoholic drinks. There was not one non-alcoholic drink. 
And so, for example, there was this widespread belief that fast bowlers, the muscular, tall bowlers, should drink a lot of beer because it would be good for muscular development. As a batsman, the main concern was that if you drank too much alcohol, it might affect your eyesight. They didn't seem to particularly care about the rest of your health. And they encouraged young batsmen to drink iced claret. So the most popular drink on the fields of play in Australia in the mid-19th century for cricketers was to take a break from cricket and to nip off to the uh, alcohol tent and have a nip of iced claret. And the journalists used to euphemistically describe this as the batsman or bowler having a nip of lemonade. But everyone in the, the crowd and also the journalists knew that men, uh, the cricketers were drinking a lot of alcohol during a game. And often a loss in a sporting contest was attributed to, to alcohol. And particularly when the English came out and visited playing cricket, there were a lot of comments about the behaviour of English cricketers because Australians really in the 1860s and 1870s regarded the English cricketers as, as our role model. And when it was seen that off the field and during the course of play, the English cricketers drank just as heavily, if not more heavily, than Australians, they dropped in the, in, in the judgment of local sports fans as being people that we should actually follow. And there are many, many examples of English cricketers and Australian cricketers going what was called on the spree, that is, hitting the town and drinking heavily. We have the same things in Australia. I'm sure you have it in the United States, and the same would exist throughout most of the world, where professional sportsmen on road trips will drink heavily and get into arguments, fights, nightclubs and so on. The equivalent existed in the 19th century, except it wasn't jumbo jets that uh, uh, sportsmen drank on. It was uh, buggies and uh, coach rides that they drank heavily on. I was I was reading those those chapters talking about the the cricketers drinking wine and beer during the break. And so we've been going through a terrible heat spell uh, here in the states. And as I was reading this, I was thinking of these cricket players in the Australian sun That's in the right. summer. <laughs> and I'm all they're drinking is beer and wine. Oh. Well, and that was, and the other thing that was interesting to me as a psychiatrist was that in the 19th century, it was believed that excessive heat, particularly sunstroke, was a forerunner of insanity. Mm -hmm. And in particular, there was great concern expressed by the medical fraternity of the day that you shouldn't play too much cricket in the heat of the day and particularly not drink alcohol because that mixture was a potent recipe for sanity, alcohol and uh, excessive sun. So you had mentioned the, uh, the English coming to Australia. Uh, I want to ask us about the story you have about the 1874 tour by an English team featuring, featuring W.G. Gray. So can you tell us yeah. what happened when, oh, yeah. when Tom yeah. Wills met W.G.? <laughs> well, W.G. Grace was a colossus in world sport. He was really the first great cricketer. He was uh, medically trained. Uh, he was a giant of a man. Um, tall, broad, uh, a, a very good bowler, a massive hitter of the ball, a slugger, if you like. 
And he was also a man with a nose for money. And so he led a team out to Australia in 1873 and 1874. And towards the end of the tour, he travelled to one of the states of Australia called South Australia, and he was due to play a team in the capital, um, the capital city of Adelaide. Instead, at the last moment, he was given, offered a lot more money to take his English team to a place called the York Peninsula, which really was almost in the middle of nowhere in Australia. He takes his team there purely to earn a lot of money, and there he meets a local team of motley South Australians, some of them were miners, some of them were actors, some of them were bankers, all wanting to play against this, against this great Englishman. And the Australians were captured by none other than Tom Wills, who, now ageing, had been pulled across from the city of Melbourne and was being paid as a coach to try and uh, turn this motley group of South Australians into a reasonable cricket team. When W.G. Grace walked out onto the field of play to play Tom Wills' team in South Australia, he asked where the pitch was, where they would actually bowl the ball, because there wasn't a blade of grass to be found. It was a mining community. And throughout the oval, there were just these small pebbles. And before the, the game could commence, they had to brush off these pebbles into a couple of jars and create a pitch on a bake-hard mud patch. And it was there that uh, W.G. Grace played Tom Wills for the first and only time. Sadly, Tom Wills played poorly. The Australians played poorly. But Grace made a fortune and then, using a bit of trickery, went back to Adelaide where he said he wouldn't play, played another Australian team, made another small fortune and left. And he and his team are recorded as saying that they'd made a nice fortune and talked about the way they had belittled and also tricked the colonists. Because really by the end of that tour, Grace had very little time for the Australians and he regarded them as somewhat crude and overbearing. But it was really the last time that Tom Wills had a brush with any sportsman of any note. That was about six years before he took his life. Yeah. So I wanted to ask as well, you, you've talked already about the, uh, the circumstances of Wills's uh, suicide and uh, yeah. his alcoholism by that time. So can you give us a picture of, of Wills in his, in his final years? What, what sure. became of him then? Well, he died in 1880. He died in May 1880. In the last couple of years of his life, he was still playing cricket. What, what I mentioned before as a sportsman, he was always seeking out new adventures. It was almost like he could not live his life without playing sport. So in the last couple of years of his life, he is clearly a confirmed alcoholic, drinking heavily. Yet despite this, every summer you will find him playing with a cricket team. And he's gone playing from the finest team in the land to then to the second finest team until in his early 40s, just before his death, he's now playing park cricket with like a local neighbourhood team. And what struck me was that when I read his account of him, this once great sportsman, playing with a very, very inferior 
teams, what struck me was that competitive streak, that desire to win, even at uh, such a lowly level, was still there. And I think you see that in a lot of extraordinary sportsmen. So he's drinking, playing cricket. He stopped playing football probably four or five years before he died, but then he took up umpiring. Without sport, he really had nothing in his life. When he took his life, one of the things that really struck me and what I was curious about as a psychiatrist was clearly to take your life in 1880 was as every bit as tragic as it is in the 21st century. In a lot of my clinical work, I'm dealing with suicidal people on a daily basis. But in 1880 in Australia, if you took your life, a coroner could force the family to have the body buried at night time to inflict shame upon the family. And also, a minister of religion could and sometimes did refuse to read a, re a religious service over the graveside, really, as a, again, as a way of shaming the family over the method of death. Now, neither of these indignities were inflicted upon Tom, but his family were very religious, particularly his mother. And there's a great piece of oral history that when, when, when one of the newspaper reporters went to interview Tom's mum after Tom's suicide, the reporter was supposed to have asked, can you tell us about your son, Thomas Wills? And she said, or was reported to have said, in words that unfortunately condemn her to this day, I have no son called Thomas. And in none of the letters I found after her son's death did she ever, ever refer to her son. And none of Tom's sisters ever referred to him. It was left to his three brothers who occasionally mentioned Tom, and when they did so, they spoke about him with great love and affection. And when they decided to bury Tom, they buried him in an earthen grave, almost like what we'd call a pauper's grave, because it, there was no headstone erected at all. And it remained like that for a 100 years until the Melbourne Cricket Club returned and erected a headstone to write a century of neglect. To me, it was an extraordinarily poignant way to, to end your life. It was a lonely and miserable end for him. It was a violent death, stabbing himself on the outskirts of Melbourne. He'd become a beggar within his own family, and the last few letters we have before he died indicate that he would write these somewhat pathetic letters to his younger brothers, uh, beseeching them to send him 10 pounds, 20 pounds. And with characteristic alcoholic deceit, he always promised that he would pay them back, but almost certainly he never did. So, Greg, you mentioned that uh, toward the end of his life, when he was still playing cricket and playing with, with Parks teams, that uh, it reminded you of, of other athletes who just cannot give up their sport. And That's right. the, the, the subtitle of your book is the first wild man of Australian sport. And knowing that Australian sport, like, like American sport, has had its share of wild men. I was wondering while reading the book, do you think that, that Wills represents some type of, of template for the, 
the celebrated but really uncontrollable athlete of the of the modern era? I do. In fact, I mean, no doubt about it. One of the things that I, one of the hypotheses I had in my mind when I embarked on this study ten years ago was, did Tom Wills embody that that characteristic, almost heroic, damaged, usually male, sporting figure? And whilst there, uh, each figure will have their own nuance, their own subtlety their own story, their cultural influence, whether they're American, Australian, European, Asian. I think that there is a core in our humanity, with male humanity, that is actually common across cultures and geographical zones. That when I've talked about this story to, to people in other cultures, there are kind of nods of understanding. It's not as though that this is a story that they find bizarre, or unusual or foreign. There's nothing foreign about this story at all. In fact, in all our countries, we could probably think of half a dozen individuals like this, and there'll be contemporary individuals. But what, what I really looked for, or what I look for in these sorts of sportsmen, is not just what they accomplish in their sport, but what they accomplish and tell us about the culture and the times and the nation within which they lived. And Tom Wills does that in an Australian context better than just about anyone in our history. Well, that's what I was going to ask next, because uh, as you said at the start of the interview, you, when you were living in the United States, you wanted to, you wanted to research something uh, that was distinctively Australian. So what does, yes. what does Wills' life reveal about uh, Australian culture in, in the 19th century, or perhaps Australian culture in general? <laughs> well, gosh... You know, where do you start? I think one of the things he... If you look at the main forces in his life, the, 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 the kind of determinants... Okay, there is the black-white nexus. This is a man who grew up with Aborigines. This is a man whose father was murdered by Aborigines. This is a man who then creates an Aboriginal cricket team. And this is a man who may have been influenced by Aboriginal to create the game of Australian football. To me, that's representative of the wider Australian, contemporary wider Australian society. For in our country, to me, the biggest moral issue we face as a nation is how we have treated our Indigenous population and how we continue to wrestle and negotiate uh, um, white and black. So Tom Wills is a kind of metaphor, a, a, a symbolic representation of this ongoing debate. That's one way. That, that's one way he gets to the heart of our nation. Another way for me that he gets to the heart of, the heart of our nation is that he was quintessentially Australian. He was very egalitarian in mindset. So, for example, when he created the Aboriginal cricket team, he treated the Aborigines with respect and he looked at their cricketing prowess, not the colour of their skin. But at the same time he was quintessentially Australian, he would often talk about his six years living in England, that imperial imprint that he felt gave him a kind of superior sporting pedigree. And in Australia, I still think we have that nexus as well, that English and colonial line. And there's a tug of war. Sometimes 
we're very proud of what we do as a nation. Other times we tend to borrow a great deal from other countries, particularly England. Well, Greg, we're almost out of time, and I'll, I'll ask you, uh, so you've been working on this book for for a decade, as you say, and I know that now you've been touring in Australia talking about your book. Do you have, now that you have a taste of writing sports biography and sports history, do you have another another project in mind? or? You, well, the, every time I mention another book, my wife faints. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to an interview with Greg Damore about his book, Tom Wills, First Wild Man of Australian Sport, published in 2011 by Allen and Unwin. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects like military history, journalism, and jazz. If you like what you heard here, please follow New Books and Sports on Twitter or friend us on Facebook. You can give us your feedback, offer suggestions, and find links to thoughtful sports writing from around the world. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thank you for listening and enjoy your week.